Lord gave you those commands through Moses, and they have been in effect from the day they were given through the generations until today. If you made this mistake where everyone could see it, the whole community must offer a young bull as a burnt offering, as a sweet-smelling gift to the Lord. You must also offer the grain offering and the drink offering with the bull. And you must also give a male goat as a sin offering. So the priest will make the whole community of Israel pure, and they will be forgiven for the mistakes they made. Since they made the mistake, they must bring a gift and a sin offering to the Lord. Then the whole community of Israel and any foreigners among them will be forgiven for the mistake. But if only one person makes a mistake and sins, that person must bring a female goat that is one year old. That goat will be the sin offering. The priest will make purification before the Lord for the one who sinned, and that person will be forgiven. This law is for everyone who makes a mistake and sins. The same law is for the people born in the family of Israel and for the foreigners living among you. If someone sins and knows what they if someone sins and knows they are doing wrong, they are rebelling against the Lord. They must be separated from their people. The same Law applies to the citizens of Israel and to foreigners living among you. They thought the Lord's word was not important, so they broke his commands. That is why they must be separated from their people. They must bear the responsibility for their guilt. When the Israelites were in the desert, some of them saw a man gathering firewood on the Sabbath day. The people who saw him gathering the wood brought him to Moses and Aaron and the whole community of Israel. They guarded the man carefully because they did not know how they should punish him. Then the Lord said to Moses, the man must die. All the people must throw stones at him outside the camp. So the people took him outside the camp and killed him with stones. They did this just as the Lord commanded Moses. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites, tell them this, tie several pieces of thread together and tie them in the corner of your clothes. Put a piece of blue thread in each of these tassels. You must wear these things now and forever. You will be able to look at these tassels and remember all the commands that the Lord has given you. Then they, then you will obey the commands. You will not do wrong by forgetting about the commands and doing things that your own bodies and eyes want. You will remember to obey all my commands. Then you will be God's special people. I am the Lord your God. I am the one who brought you out of Egypt. I did this to be your God. I am the Lord your God. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So today is Mother's Day, and that means that some of you will be expecting a Mother's Day sermon, a sentimental tribute to the women who brought us into the world, a heartfelt homage to the women who fed us and clothed us and lost sleep over us. 
Now, I'm not exactly sure how to make Mother's Day fit in with our scripture reading from Numbers chapter 15, but I suppose I could tell you that Anna Maria Jarvis, the creator of Mother's Day, lived right here in Philadelphia. She was born in West Virginia, the ninth of 11 children. She herself never married. She never had children of her own. And in 1908, three years after her mother died, Jarvis organized a memorial ceremony to honor her mother and to honor all mothers at Andrews Methodist Episcopal Church in Grafton, West Virginia, her mother's hometown. Jarvis lived in Philadelphia at the time and did not attend the ceremony, but she spent she sent a speech there via a lengthy telegram along with 500 white carnations for all of the people attending the ceremony. That was the first Mother's Day celebration. And Jarvis then made it her full-time quest to promote the adoption of Mother's Day as a national holiday. She kicked off her campaign here in Philadelphia with a very moving speech at the auditorium in the John Wanamaker store in Center City. John Wanamaker himself got behind the project. At first, the United States Congress rejected the idea. One unimpressed lawmaker asked, what's next, Mother-in-Law's Day? But by 1914, Jarvis's dream was realized. Mother's Day became a national holiday in the United States, and the white carnation became its symbol. Of the chosen flower, Jarvis wrote, its whiteness is to symbolize the truth, purity, and broad charity of mother love. Its fragrance, her memory, and her prayers. The carnation does not drop its petals, but hugs them to its heart as it dies. And so too, mothers hug their children to their hearts, their mother's love never dying. Now that sounds like a Mother's Day sermon. But here's the curious thing. Once Jarvis got what she wanted, once her quest to enshrine mothers on the national calendar was accomplished, she became disenchanted and sour as the day became a bonanza for merchants selling flowers and greeting cards and chocolates, and all the while Jarvis herself never saw a penny of profit. By the 1920s, sending mom a Hallmark card or bringing her a box of chocolates had become an established ritual in the month of May. But here's what the embittered Jarvis said about that. I quote, A printed card means nothing except that you are too lazy to write to the woman who has done more for you than anyone in the world. And candy. You take a box to mother, and then you eat most of it yourself. Now there's another Mother's Day sermon. Having worked so hard to get Mother's Day established, Jarvis then worked to have the holiday rescinded. She organized boycotts. She threatened lawsuits against the card companies that manufactured Mother's Day cards. She had invented the term, after all. In 1923... At a Philadelphia candy makers convention, Jarvis was out on the streets protesting Mother's Day. 
1925, an organization called American War Mothers was selling carnations for Mother's Day, and the founder of Mother's Day became so incensed that she got herself arrested for disturbing the peace. Try as she might, Mother's Day, with the cards and the flowers and the candy, was here to stay, and Jarvis died penniless in a public sanatorium in Westchester, Pennsylvania. People in the greeting card business and the flower business paid for her burial expenses, and she was laid to rest in West Laurel Hill Cemetery next to her mother in 1948. Now, I'm no psychiatrist, but God bless her. This Jarvis woman sure does seem crazy. And thank God she had no children of her own. Don't get me wrong, I like children, and that means that I like mothers because you need mothers to have children. And I'm at that sweet spot in my life right now where I get to witness my own firstborn child, Rosie, whom I still think of as about, you know, this, this big, just big enough to put on my forearm like a deflated football or like a lazy cat. These days I get to see my firstborn child with her firstborn if you haven't met him yet, he's around here. His name is Sebastian, and he's just at that size where you can heft him. He towed him around like a 20-pound sack of potatoes. He's a very nice boy. When my wife Ava and I had Rosie, we were living in a little row house on Home Street in the... Lawrenceville section of Pittsburgh. I was a graduate student. I was working as a secretary. Ava was a public school teacher, the main wage earner in our house. My mother, who lived in Alaska at that time, came to Pittsburgh for a week to be on hand for the birth of her first grandchild and to help out as we settled in with the new baby. But my mother is an impatient woman. And so the week that she spent with us was the week before the baby was born rather than the week after the baby arrived. My very pregnant wife spent a week entertaining her out-of-town mother-in-law and then the baby was born and then it was time to drive my mother back to the airport. Here's a remarkable but true fact. My daughter Rosie visited the Pittsburgh International Airport in her baby car seat before she had visited her own home. And her first visit with her grandmother was in the back seat of a Jeep Cherokee. When Ava and I were out in Pittsburgh a couple of weeks ago, we did a drive-by of the first house where Rosie had lived. We actually own a painting of that house. And on the way, about three blocks away, on the main street in that district, we passed the Arsenal Bowling Alley. Two days after Rosie came home, I said to Ava, what do you say we get out of the house and go over to the bowling alley? I didn't think, I don't think we've ever, had ever been to that bowling alley, but we were stir crazy, and so we put Rosie into her stroller, and off we went. There was a narrow little wooden staircase rising from the street level, and so we carried the stroller upstairs to the second floor, and there we met all of those familiar sounds in a bowling alley, the loud sounds, the crashing sounds. And while Rosie slept there in her stroller, 
her mother, who had just given birth to an 11-pound baby three days earlier, found a nice pink 14-pound bowling ball and went to work knocking down the pins. Now, last weekend, my daughter Rosie, who is now five months postpartum, she was back out in Pittsburgh running a marathon. Maybe she even ran past this bowling alley. Ava and Rosie, I admire these women. They are a couple of tough mothers. And by God's grace, each of them gave birth to a perfect baby. Happy, healthy, huggable. And I'm in this sweet spot in my life because I look backwards and I look forwards with the same glance. I see my daughter with her own happy baby, and I remember my wife 30 years ago with her happy baby. Seeing Sebastian Adamson Bruce reminds me that the promise of God's blessing is to our children and to our children's children. Thanks be to God. Okay, that's enough about Mother's Day. Let's talk about Numbers chapter 15. Now, Numbers chapter 15, I realize, might seem a little boring. I mean, it's a whole lot of precise rules about sacrifices, or it might seem a little horrifying because it gives an account of the first person executed under the law of Moses. But in this chapter, we find fundamental truths about our worship life and about our identity as God's people, and it's worth our attention this morning. I want to begin at the end of the chapter, and you have it there uh, in your bulletins if you want to take a look at verse 40 and 41. There we read, this is God speaking directly, you will remember to obey all my commands, then, when you remember, then you will be God's special people. I am the Lord your God. I am the one who brought you out of Egypt. I did this to be your God. Now, I don't know how you think about God's law. If you're anything like me, you think of the law as a burden, as something that cramps your style, as a set of rules that keep you from doing what you would want to do otherwise. But the Bible describes God's law as the very thing that creates the special relationship between God and God's people. When we say to God, you are our God, and when God says to us, you are my people, those words create a relationship. God is not just any old God. God is not a generic God. He's our God. And we're not just any old people. We're not generic people. We are his people. Next month, right here in this sanctuary, we are going to celebrate a wedding in the Sunday morning worship service. You're not going to want to miss church that morning. Two members of our congregation are going to come right up here, and he is going to say to her, I'm your husband, and you're my wife. And she's going to say to him, I'm your wife, and you are my husband. That's a special and a holy relationship. God says, I did this to be your God. God wanted 
to be the unique and one and only God to these people. That's why God rescued them out of slavery. That's why God gave them his law at Mount Sinai. God's law, God's covenant are the words that define our relationship with God just as our wedding vows define our relationship with our spouse. So that's where we need to begin when we think about God's law. Not as a burden, not as a ball and chain, but as the covenant that binds us to God, as the covenant that binds us to God in this special and holy relationship. So let's talk about a couple of parts of God's law. As you know, there are 613 laws in the Old Testament. They cover a lot of different things. Some of the laws are about moral behavior. Some of the laws are about how we worship God. Some of the laws are about how we organize civil society. Chapter 15 begins with laws about worship. One part of divine worship is the presentation of sacrifices and offerings. Now, we often think of sacrifices as payments or as atonements for sins, and some of them are. But the sacrifices and offerings discussed in verses 1 through 16 are, in fact, fellowship offerings. These are gifts to God just because we love God. And the Bible tells us that the smell or the aroma of these offerings pleases God. Today, we might call these things sacrifices of praise. When we sing songs to God, and by the way, please remember that every sacred song that we sing in this sacred place is directed toward God. Every hymn that we sing in this sanctuary is intended for the ears of God. In a service of divine worship, it is God who is the audience and not the congregation. When someone says to me, I don't like that hymn, or I don't care for that choral anthem, I think to myself, even if I don't say it out loud, I think to myself, well, we weren't singing it for you anyway. We were singing it to God, and he's pleased. Here in this sanctuary, we lift up our hearts and we sing to God. This is our sacrifice of praise. And in the same way, we wouldn't bring a blemished or maimed animal for a sacrifice. We also bring our very best into the worship service. That's why the choir rehearses for an hour and a half on Thursday to sing for four minutes on Sunday morning. And even if I mess up the bass part, I know that if my heart is humble before God, I know that if my desire is to glorify God, then my song will rise before the throne of God like incense and the aroma of our worship will be pleasing to Him. When we come to worship, our desire should be to please God, to make His heart glad. As soon as the focus is on ourselves, we cease to be worshipers. Now, here's the real puzzle. And i got to tell you, it's a puzzle that we as worship leaders wrestle with every week. The real puzzle is that what we as the people of God need most, what will make us most joyful, what will satisfy us most, for this one hour in this place, what would be best for us is to forget about us. 
We have to stop focusing on ourselves. If our eyes are on God, if our hearts are lifted up to God without reservation, without self-consciousness, without a critical spirit, then God will be honored and God will be pleased and we will leave this place knowing that we've been in the presence of God and there's no feeling like it. I hope you have felt that occasionally during your worship life, but it only happens when we stop looking at ourselves and when we stop thinking that this service is about us. If you want to save your life, you have to lose it, the Bible tells us. If you want to follow Christ, you have to take up your cross. The fellowship offerings described in verses 1 through 16 were something like a meal that you presented to God. They were something like the Lord's Supper, but not exactly. Maybe we should think of them the way we think about preparing a feast for our honored guests. All of you know the pleasure of laying out a Thanksgiving meal for your family, and maybe you're busy and maybe you're rushing around. Maybe you don't even have time to eat it yourself, but when everything comes out beautifully and the family gathers around the table and their faces are glowing and their stomachs are full, even if you're stuck in the kitchen the whole time, your heart is full because you brought your best to the people that you love most. That's what we do in worship. And God is pleased with our offering. In verses 17 through 21, we have instructions about offerings that we make to God out of our daily bread. These are offerings that are not made in the temple or in the tabernacle, but that are made at home because our worship should not only be happening on Sunday morning, it should be happening every day of the week. We read in verse 19, when you eat the food that grows in that land, and by the way, remember that all of the land and all of the produce in that land is being given by God to these people. When you eat the fruit that, the food that grows in that land, you must give part of that food as an offering to the Lord. When you grind flour and bake bread, the first loaf is going to go to God. Now, we don't do this anymore, but I think it's a beautiful idea. We do give the first fruits of our labors as our tithe. The tithe, of course, is not what's left over after all the other bills are paid. The tithe is always the first loaf. It's the best, and it's the first, because the whole of what we have has come from God anyway. And when we begrudge God his tithe, what we're really thinking is that we are the ones who have created our income. And that God should be grateful to us if we make a donation out of the goodness of our hearts. That, of course, is backwards, and it's not biblical. The right view is that all of our income has has been given to us by God. And we honor God, and we recognize where this bounty comes from by obeying him and giving him the first loaf. And when we do that, we will find that our bills get paid and that there is food on the table. I like this idea of the first loaf because it puts God at the table with us every time that we eat. Perhaps a remnant of this idea that we still have in our religious practices today is to say a word of blessing over the food that we eat. And I do hope all of you pray 
before your meals. It's a simple way to bring God into your life and to honor God and to remind yourself and to remind your family that God has provided and that we have what we have because God has given it to us. It reminds us that we are not the creator, but that we, in fact, are the consumers. The remainder of this chapter, oh, I skipped over the whole thing about the guy getting stoned. You want to talk about that, Susan? <laughs> okay, this is, this is the first execution we have in the Bible. Okay. And you'll notice that it's for violating the Sabbath. So just be glad you're here today. The remainder of this chapter distinguishes two kinds of sins, and it provides a mnemonic device for helping us to avoid sin. Verse 22 says, as you try to obey all the commands that the Lord gave Moses, you might fail and make a mistake. That's one kind of sin. You tried, but you messed up. Today is Mother's Day, so let's talk about when mothers mess up. Okay, this is the worst Mother's Day sermon ever. Okay, first I talk about the baddie, Anna Marie Jarvis, and now I'm going to talk about how mothers fail their children. I will be getting nasty emails this week. But it's true. Parents mess up. Sometimes we try our very best and still things don't turn out right. Other times, well, maybe we didn't really try our best. Maybe we took some shortcuts. Maybe... We could have tried harder. Maybe we could have done things differently and the kids pay the price. The sins of the father and the sins of the mother are truly visited on the children. My daughter, Rosie, is 31 years old. She is a fully formed adult. You can ask her about the shortcomings of her father. I give you permission. She will tell you. I love my children and I have enjoyed them all of these years, but I have regrets about my parenting, about not spending enough time with them, about my quick temper, about thinking of my own needs and desires more than theirs. Sometimes we try and we fail. And God provided a sacrificial system for removing that kind of guilt. Verse 28 reads, The priest will make purification before the Lord for the one who has sinned. And that person will be forgiven. Now for us as Christians, Jesus is our high priest. Jesus made the once for all time sacrifice by his death on the cross. And by faith in Jesus, we are purified. Our sins are forgiven. And it is important for us to trust God for that forgiveness. Some people have a morbid preoccupation with their past sins. That's not healthy. We need to confess those sins to God. We need to accept the forgiveness that's been offered, and we need to get on with life. Let me make a very important distinction for you, a distinction between God and Satan. All of us have sinned, and all of us will continue to sin, if we are in Christ, if we have been redeemed, the Holy Spirit will convict us of that sin, okay? It's one of the signs that you're a redeemed person, that you feel the conviction 
of the Holy Spirit. That conviction stings. It hurts. It is not pleasant. But the conviction of the Holy Spirit does not crush our spirit or destroy us. Because the conviction of the Holy Spirit is designed to lead us to repentance. It's designed to lead us toward forgiveness. It's designed to lead us to life and to happiness. Now Satan offers an imitation of the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Satan, whose name in Hebrew, by the way, means the accuser. Satan loves to point out our sins. In fact, he'll throw our past mistakes in our face. He'll bring them up again and again. He will repeatedly remind us of how miserable and worthless and unlovable we are. He loves to accuse us. Not so that we will confess and be purified, but so that we will be haunted and tormented and crushed and condemned. Satan is a destroyer, and he wants us to despair. He wants us to be hopeless. But Satan is also a liar even when he speaks a partial truth. Don't ever confuse the accusations of Satan with the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Here's the truth. In Romans 8, verse 1, we read, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Zero. Okay? Those who are born again, no, zip, nada, none, no, no condemnation for those who are born again. That's our status. If you have been united to Christ through faith, there is no condemnation for you no matter what you've done, no matter how often you've done. Because the blood of Christ is adequate to cover all of your sins. Because the perfect record of Christ is adequate to make the entire church throughout all of history to make it righteous, spotless. So that's what Numbers 15 says about when we try and fail. That's one category. But there's another category of sin, and that is the sin of rebellion. Verse 30 reads, If someone sins and knows they are doing wrong, they are rebelling against the Lord, they must be separated from the people. There is no forgiveness for rebellion. The only solution for the rebel is to be removed from the people of God. The rebels were exiled, they were cut off, they were condemned to live with the pagans. If you know God's law but choose to not obey it, you simply are not part of God's people because the special relationship between God and his people consists in that law. The law is the covenant. It's the vow. It's the bond between God and his people. In the church, we call this removal excommunication. It's one thing to sin And then to acknowledge the sin and repent, the church will put up with those people all day long because that's the life of every Christian. We do continue to sin, but when we sin, we repent and we try again. We try to be better. But for those who claim to be in the church but knowingly continue to sin without repentance, they must be removed from the church. Now, this does not mean that they cannot come back. 
The prodigal is always welcomed home, but there is no way to come back if there is no repentance. Okay? If they repent, they can come back. But without repentance, no, you can't come back. During my time at HVPC, we have had only one case of excommunication. A member of this church, a married man, was having an affair with another woman, and he refused to stop. I spoke with him. The session formally instructed him to stop what he was doing and to go back to his wife. And when he refused, we ultimately had to cut him off from fellowship. We removed him from the membership of the church. I pray that one day he comes to his senses. But until that moment, he is an exiled rebel and he's on the highway to hell. So let's talk about tassels. You may know that Orthodox Jews wear tassels on the corners of their garments. Verse 39 gives us the reason. You will be able to look at these tassels and remember all the commands that the Lord has given you. Then you will obey the commands. You will not do wrong by forgetting about the commands and doing the things that your own bodies and eyes want. Two things to notice, and then we can quit. First, our eyes and our bodies often lead us in a direction contrary to the law of God. You already know that, but I just wanted to say it out loud. Secular pagan culture tells us that we should do whatever our eyes and our bodies want. That's why secular pagan culture is on the highway to hell. There is no redemption in secular pagan culture. And secondly, visual reminders are helpful in terms of our spiritual formation. We are a forgetful and a distracted people. All of us need reminders. That's why we keep coming back to church Sunday after Sunday. That's why we keep going to our small group Bible studies. That's why we maintain a daily devotional schedule because we need to be reminded all of the time. Some people wear crosses as a visual reminder to remind them of who they are and to remind the world of who they are, that they belong to Christ. It's a kind of like a wedding ring, a visual reminder of the identity of the married person. Now, last Sunday, Don Timberg, he was sitting over there. He thought my sermon uh, was too long. I told him he got his money's worth. All right. So today's sermon was pretty long too, but that's just because we had to talk about Miss, Miss Jarvis. All right. So I hope you all have a wonderful Mother's Day. Those of you who forgot, you still can call your mom. All right, you can make it up to her. Do the right things, gentlemen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for uh, the chance to come together in this place and to gather with our brothers and sisters. We thank you for uh, the sweetness of the fellowship here. We thank you that we can sing songs to you and that you're pleased by what you hear. Lord, I thank you for the the songs of the, the children this morning, how sweet it is to hear uh, their voices and to hear them sing these uh, true, true things to you. Lord, I pray that uh, you would make us a people who, who do honor our fathers and our mothers. I pray that we would uh, support and uh, uh, work to encourage each of the mothers in our midst, help them in their hard jobs. 
Lord, I pray that we would be grateful for what our mothers have done for us. And Lord, uh, those of us who are mothers, I pray that you would strengthen us and encourage us uh, for the work that we have, for the responsibility that we have. I pray that you would give us joy day by day in those responsibilities. And Lord, for those of us who have grief surrounding our relationship with our mothers or our relationship with our children, Lord, I pray that you would be a balm of healing in those circumstances. I pray that you would knit mothers, mothers and children back together where there has been a breach. Lord, I pray that you would um, be with us and that you would guide us and that you would keep us in the center of your will and your way. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.